Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. This is a bit of a different show if you haven't been able to tell already by the settings. In politics, we often orient things around political parties. It's the Liberals versus the Conservatives versus the New Democrats. Independents do not historically have the best go of things in politics. Very few people have had success running as independents and winning. Oftentimes, people will get kicked out of a party caucus and finish out their term as an independent and then retire. But there are a few exceptions to that rule. And it's also important to look at what independents are able to do. So I wanted to take a look at that with someone who has very quickly established himself as, I think, a very unique and effective figure in Canadian politics, and that is Kevin Vong, who is the Independent Member of Parliament for Spadina for York. And I am—I was going to say he's joining me, but I'm joining you because we're yes. in your home. So, uh, Kevin, thank you very much for having me and for, for sitting down for this. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for joining me here. So let's discuss first off why you are an independent, because you were on the ballot as a Liberal. You ran for the Liberals, but uh, during the campaign, were uh, basically kicked out of the running after the ballots had, had already been printed, and you still won, which was quite an achievement. So the party made a decision in that period, and I want to hear in your words what happened there. Why did that happen? Sure. So there was a bogus allegation made against me years ago uh, that was withdrawn by the court. They realized that the false allegation of sexual assault was completely bogus. So it was completely withdrawn, no conditions, uh, not in the public interest to pursue was a uh, prosecutor's words, which I think a lot of people appreciate that when it comes to lawyers, they're very intentional about the words that they mm -hmm. use. Um, and they didn't say no reasonable prospect of conviction or any of that. So that was withdrawn, dealt with until magically four days before the election, it resurfaced again. And so what in, you know, I guess in the throes of, of the general election and the final few days, the Liberals made the decision um, that while we were supposed to be scheduled to have a chat about it and get the full debrief, my opinion was, was at the end of the day, if an allegation of charge is withdrawn, it no longer exists. But their, their opinion for some reason changed. And so three days uh, before the election, they, they, I got a essentially an email that says, Kevin, you are no longer a liberal, which was really hard at the time. I was new to politics, mm -hmm. new to partisan politics, but I guess has been a bit of a blessing in disguise. Just to not gloss over this part, there were also issues about disclosing it to, to the Liberal Party and also to the Navy, where you, you were and, and are a, a reservist. And you have said that was a mistake on your part in, in past interviews, have you not? Yes. So there is, you know, as, as a reservist, as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, we have a obligation to disclose a mm -hmm. charge, even if, even if you're innocent like I was. Um, and, you know, ignorance is not an excuse. And so I own that. That is something that I should have done. And even though the charge was ultimately withdrawn, and, and that's something where I accept the military's ruling, um, we went through uh, a, a summary hearing. And obviously there was a consequence for that. I have responsibility for that. And I would suggest I've probably paid for it in spades. One of the things that comes up in, in politics, as anyone who's been a candidate can tell you, is that you're, you're very much a casualty of a war that is bigger than you in a lot of ways. And, you know, people that uh, don't like the liberals see this guy and they think he's the weak link of the liberal campaign. So that motivates the liberals to, to cut bait in, in the way that they did. 
How was that for you on a personal level? Because it, it, it was not personal for the people that just didn't like you because you were a, a politician or a liberal. But when you're in the midst of that, that's an incredibly personal fight for you and, and for your family. Well, yes. And, and to be fair, Andrew, I was a card-carrying liberal for all of like, I don't know, three, four weeks. <laughs> um, but it, it was hard, right, to, to see your name dragged through the mud by people that you've never met mm -hmm. um, was tough. And I think even harder was to see people that you thought were your friends and family um, who, who were, were there joining the Kevin parade when, you know, I was quote unquote a rising star mm -hmm. to then turn around and try to climb off my, you know, my carcass with the knives that they <laughs> stabbed in my back. Um, and I think one of the things that came out of that was Elizabeth, uh, my wife and I were, were very lucky to find out who our real friends were. Were and and we're very grateful for mm -hmm. them who have who have been with us and have supported us in you know every every step of the way since. Uh, you mentioned having been a, a card carrying liberal for for just a few weeks. That's let's go back to 2021 here. Why did you decide to both to get into politics when you did, but why did you decide to run as a liberal? So my predecessor was retiring, and and basically he, I I got a call a few days before Canada Day. I met him because he was my MP. This is Adam Vaughn. Yes. yes. Um, you know, I, I was involved in my local community. I was, you know, president of my condo board. I, w I was chair of our residence association. You know, this was a, a city and a community that I belonged to and at the time had lived for over a decade and just was involved in giving back, just mm -hmm. wanted to make our community better. And he essentially called me. He's like, listen, I'm retiring and I, I think you should be the next MP. Um, and so... Up until that point, I was never a partisan person. I had only ever run in 2018 uh, when a bunch of people encouraged me to run because there were supposed to be new seats downtown. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Premier Doug Ford decided to change that and cut city council in half. But at the time, I really liked the idea of city council because it was nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. I was never a partisan person. Um, I just, you know, I think every party has good ideas and, you know, a good idea is a good idea. And so when the liberals asked me to run, I was like, well... Is Justin Trudeau really completely aligned my values? Probably not. But I think God knows the liberals could use people that have experience in mm -hmm. terms of what it's like to start a business and build it from the ground up. God, like, you know, <laughs> they need that. Um, and, and as a naval reservist, um, sure, I, I wasn't in the regular force, but I think there was a perspective there, particularly from, from a naval perspective that I had learned um, in my, I think at the time, seven. Uh, come next month, I, I will serve nine years as a Naval Reserve officer. And I thought that was a perspective that I could contribute. Obviously, I was very naive to politics, mm -hmm. having been new to partisan politics in particular, and none of that came to pass. But that was that was kind of my motivation, right? My parents were, were refugees. Um, Canada welcomed them when other countries are closing their borders mm -hmm. and people need. And so that was actually my primary motivation for joining the Navy, because I wanted to give back uh, to the country that's given my family so much. And so when the opportunity came up to potentially serve as a member of parliament, I was like, man, that's freaking awesome <laughs> to be able to, to not just serve part-time in uniform, but also to do it as part of my day job. Who, who wouldn't want that? If you had been, not even as a candidate, if you had been a voter in a riding that was a perfect three-way split, NDP, conservative, liberal, any one of them could have won. It's a I would, we can't say a coin toss, but if there were a three-sided coin, it would have been a three-sided coin toss. Would you have voted liberal in that election, naturally? Because part of the problem in, in some cities is that if you're going to run as a candidate, there are only a couple of options that could be available to you as a winner. And not to 
besmirch whoever the conservative is uh, going to be in, in Spadina for York. It's not a traditionally conservative riding. So mm-hmm. would you have aligned with the Liberals under that scenario I just laid out? You know, it's a good question. Um, I know I can tell you for a fact I wouldn't vote for the NDP. Um, mm-hmm. They do not reflect my values. Mm-hmm. I think like a majority of Canadians, I'm pretty centrist. Um, this is where I think it would depend on the candidate itself, mm-hmm. um, which is how our system should work. You know, I was mentioning to you, Andrew, before I guess we started rolling, you know, in 2019, uh, Andrew Shear's team asked me to run for the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just at the time they had asked me to, to run in a place that was not viable. And so in this case, I guess when the Liberals came asking for me to run and they, they invited me to do so, it was in a riding where I knew that if I worked hard enough as an individual candidate that I could win. So when the Conservatives came to you with that ask in, in 2019, notwithstanding the, the riding wouldn't have been one that they were likely to carry or did carry, was that something that you could have seen fitting? Was that something you could have seen working for you to run for that party? Yeah, so under your scenario where it was kind of like, you know, every party has an equal footing and um, where I think it's up to the candidate and if someone can outwork others, which I believe I could do, I, I would have ran for, for Andrew yeah. Shearson. One of the interesting things, just to fast forward to you being a, an independent in Parliament, is is you sto- spoke up and I think very eloquently took aim at, at what's become one of the Liberals' flagship policies, which is the, the carbon tax. And you were actually, I, I'd say, very cruelly mocked by Justin Trudeau in, in response to that question by saying, you know, your voters voted for a carbon tax, was basically what it was saying, and, and you're parroting conservative talking points. And I'm I'm curious what you thought about that, both the tone, but also that substance that uh, you would have, in a different universe, been running on and governing on a carbon tax that now you're standing up and saying, this isn't doing it for Canadians. So there's two things I'll say to that, Andrew. That entire question period, uh, Justin Trudeau, was his kind of response back to the Conservatives in particular was like, why are you making it about me? Why are you making it personal? Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be about the policy of Canadians. And then came my question, and then he did hypocritically, exactly what he criticized the Conservatives doing, which is making it personal about me. Now, what I will say about the Prime Minister is he is unfortunately so far out of touch that he doesn't realize that, yes, I think all MPs now have run on a platform of some form of a carbon tax, Mm. but a lot had changed from when we had run in 2021 Mm. to at that time in 2023, right? You need to be adaptable. You need to be able to change your policies. They can't just be written in stone because the reality is since those two years at the time of of when we had that question food inflation was the highest as it had ever been in 40 years right food bank usage was up you should be able to adapt to the realities that everyday canadians are facing and that's what that's what i was doing right you know the carbon tax clearly now unfortunately has shown that it's not effective Um, why would you continue to do something that is making it more painful for canadians and I think the reality is the Prime Minister doesn't know what it's like to have to worry about making next month's rent or putting food on the table, whereas my family has. You're right that there's a past dependency in politics, and I find a lot of the time that there's so much wisdom that suggests you can't admit you were wrong, you can't uh, be wrong, and and you have to just go all in full steam ahead on whatever you said previously. And I mean, on one hand, we we don't like politicians who who flip-flop for reasons that look more like uh, they're political in nature rather than earnest, but uh, you're also describing something there, which I, I think is a big failing of the political system, which is that very few people are willing to take a step back and say, okay, this didn't work, or this isn't working, or 
you know what, even if you support a carbon tax, which I've been pretty clear on the show, I don't, but even if you support one, okay, Canadians cannot afford this right now. And uh, the number of people in, in the Liberal caucus that have done that is is basically one, I think, uh, Ken Hardy from Newfoundland. So there must be privately, and I'm, I'm curious about this, some, some more misgivings that people are not willing to share publicly. Have you experienced that? So I have heard from kind of liberals in the grapevine, as I said, you know, that I am articulating a lot of positions, whether it is on the Israel and Hamas mm -hmm. war or the carbon tax, a position that they share, but for one reason or another, don't feel comfortable mm. uh, articulating publicly. Um, and that's, that's a shame, right? That they're in a position where they can't speak up for their constituents who are struggling to make ends meet, right? The, mm -hmm. You know, they'll continue to parrot these lines either by choice or, or because they've been whipped to do so, you know, in spite of the of what the evidence and the facts show. The Departmentary Budget Officer has yeah. said that the carbon tax, um, contrary to what the Liberal line is, <laughs> actually hurts more Canadians than it helps, whereas the Liberal line somehow flips that. Yeah, they basically say everyone's profiting from the carbon tax, which uh, I don't think people buy when they go to the gas station, but uh, nevertheless. Exactly, and, and they're getting taxed twice, right? Mm -hmm. So HSC is also applied on top of the carbon tax. Mm -hmm. And so they're getting dinged twice, and you know everyone's heating bill is basically double because if you look at the line items, the carbon tax is, is yeah. <laughs> So going back to your election, you are elected as a liberal. You're the winner. You know that you're not going to be sitting in the Liberal caucus, at least right away. Was that a bittersweet night or was it all positive and that you've been dragged through the ringer and you beat it? Um, it was not a bittersweet night. Um, you know, if you ask my father-in-law, he's recounted this to me because it was a very, it was a, a very long uh, election in the sense that the ballots were being counted. The lines for, for the voting stations were actually really long in mind. Mm -hmm. And I remember fielding text messages um, from constituents and friends who live in Iran. They're like, Kevin, I don't understand. Are you still a liberal or are you not? Mm -hmm. and, and I would have to kind of go through that process of explaining, actually, yeah. I'm no longer a liberal. It'll still say liberal on the ballot, but I'm, I'm independent now. And they're like, okay, that, I don't care. I, I know you and I, mm -hmm. I want to support you and I'm going to vote for you. I just wanted to know. Uh, you know, what, what, what the deal is. And, and I'm grateful to all those people who, you know, had spent 10 years living in the community. They knew who I was, right? Whatever kind of that, the, the headline that, uh, said. And so that, that night I ended up kind of just going to bed. I was like, you know, I, you know, it's kind of painful watching reruns of them, uh, kind of the newscast are going through, oh, you know, Kevin's kicked out and all this. I was like, hey, you know, I, you know you've, I've heard it once, I've heard it now. Yeah. And my father-in-law told me they, they, him and my mother-in-law had stayed up and we were with them that, that evening. And in the morning when they saw that I had won, they knocked on the door um, and we're like, hey, Kevin, you won. And I was like, oh, okay. And apparently, I don't remember this at all. And they're like, apparently I then just rolled back over. Uh, and kind of that was it, right? Because you got to put yourself in, you know, I'm the Sunday immigrants, refugees. We had nothing. We had to work hard to build up everything that we had. And in, in this case, the one thing that all of us have is really our name and our mm -hmm. reputation. And, and I spent 30 plus years building it up only for a false allegation to basically have it kind of tossed aside and dragged through the mud. And the hardest thing for me too is at that time, I had spent six and a half years, I think, contributing um, to to the Navy and helping to kind of 
build up the Navy's awareness and reach locally in the city as well as the GTA. And I was proud of that. And because of one mistake, which again, I own, mm -hmm. I basically kind of washed all of that contribution impact away. Hmm. At, at least that's how I had felt, right? So, you know, I had, I was so proud of my service in the Navy. And now I was the one who had kind of hurt the Navy. And, and I had hurt my family, my friends who, who had supported me. And, and I, it was just so, I don't know how to describe it now, but it was just, you know, it was, it was really hard. And, and so it was, it was not bittersweet. It was, it was, it was really tough. Did you have a sense that, you know what, once I get to Ottawa, this will all be sorted out. The liberals will welcome me back after a month in the penalty box. Did, did you have a, it will either a presumption or, or even a calculation of, of likelihood that you'd be welcomed into the liberal caucus at some point in the near future? Uh, not really. Uh, Did you want to be? Well, so at the time I was like, well, you know, sure. I was card carrying member for three, four weeks, but that's also the only team that I kind of quote unquote was mm -hmm. officially a part of, right? You knew no one else was going to pick you up. It was either whether they would forgive you or whether you'd be living what you're living now. Yeah. So, you know, at the time I was like, well, you know, maybe through hard work, Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, folks had told me, you know, Kevin, like most independents would have just kind of kept their head down, cast their check and then just kind of wrote out yeah. however long the mandate would be. Right. And for me, I was like, well, that's just not who I am. Right. Um, I was, I, I volunteered to serve both, you know, that was a case for the Navy and that was a case to serve in, in public office. And, and I remember when I was kind of talking to friends about, you know, when my predecessor asked me to run uh, and the liberals had, had wanted me to be their candidate, people were like, Kevin, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Why would you, you know, our, our startup uh, was doing really well. They're like, why would you get off the rocket ship? You're, I, I was teaching at Western at the time, uh, our alma mater. I was serving in the Navy and then my naval career was going well uh, and the business was going well. Why would you get off the rocket ship and, mm -hmm. and you know, off an otherwise great private civilian career? and subject yourself to the vulgarity of public office. Mm -hmm. And in many respects, they were right. But I naively was like, well, this is about giving back to the country that gave my family so much. Um, and and so, you know, I, I had already given that up to be able to serve in public office. Mm -hmm. And I, so I was going to do the job. I'm, I'm going to do what I was elected to do. And that means going out and doing the hard work and setting up for the issues that are important um, to my community and what I believe to be important to the country. Did, did you view being an independent as a handicap at first, or did you relatively early see, you know what, this could actually be an advantage? It was hard um, because when, when a normal, I guess, typical MP is elected, they have a support system, right, that the party provides that kind of guides you through that. It's like there's like an onboarding. Mm -hmm. The House of Commons has that too for everyone but it is not as in depth. It is, there's no support network there. And so I kind of had to muddle through and figure out stuff on my own. Well, you, you still, to be frank, had a, a toxicity about you as well at the time, where some people that even thought you were wrong probably wouldn't want to be caught in a photo with you by a journalist, right? Yeah, exactly right. And, and there were times where I would be walking the riding, doing what I think an MP should be, knocking on doors, checking into small businesses, and you know, random people would would kind of start yelling at me and, hmm. and accosting me. I think the worst part, and one of the things that I, I think I regret not doing at the time was 
you know, there's a reporter from CBC and a few others that would have cost my wife, then my, uh, my girlfriend, when she was walking our dog. I wasn't even uh, there, right? Uh, you know, there's a CBC reporter, like tabloid style, kind of outside our condo, uh, just waiting for Kevin to emerge. And I regret not um, reporting that to, to the CBC ombudsman and, and, and the uh, mm -hmm. ombudsman more writ large. What was it for you that maybe flipped that switch where you started to have the attitude that you seem to express now, which is that being an independent is actually a bit of an advantage? Maybe it's not ideal, but it, it opens up doors that you don't have when you're whipped, when you're, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of glued to a, a platform. Was there a specific issue that kind of caused you to view that differently? I think uh, I think the carbon tax is where we started. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was one of the first, I think, to call for temporary relief. Right. The Paul Martin government did that mm -hmm. um, when gas rice is really high with the GSC relief. Why couldn't the Trudeau government do the same when their people were suffering? Food bank lines were so long and food inflation was the highest in my lifetime mm -hmm. and the lifetime of half of all Canadians. But then it foreign interference started to to really rise as an issue. And I'm glad it did. And it still is and a, a very important issue. And that's where I was able to to speak up in a way where. I know I wouldn't have been able to. I was still a member of the Liberal Caucus, um, and it hasn't been easy. I don't think it's a coincidence that when I was starting to stand up very strongly on foreign interference, that that's when we got our first bomb threat. Hmm. Explain that. What happened? So I, I think depending on who you speak to, there are uh, individuals who believe that what happened to me was not uh, an, an incident by way of just kind of one bogus individual but potentially because- You mean the, the sexual assault allegation? Correct. Okay. Um, you know, that false allegation against me um, could have been part of a machination over uh, something much more uh, broader and, and longer term. And that's because you don't have to be a political scientist to realize that me being the uh, you know, son of refugees um, who were persecuted by communists, um, who were run out of their country um, by communists that took everything, um, would not be sympathetic to the Chinese uh, Communist Party and their agenda. And I've spoken since to quite a number of, of kind of experts in that field where they've described people like me, uh, i.e. Canadian-born Chinese, um, as kind of being one of the CCP's kind of worst nightmares because hmm. you, you, you're someone who's from the Chinese-Canadian diaspora and that community not parroting their mm -hmm. lines. They instead want to see kind of people who were born in the mainland um, who would be sympathetic to them. And, and so, you know, I, I, by the time I, I was sworn in as a member of parliament, that was the second time I had sworn an oath of allegiance and service to the country, right? And the first being when I joined the Navy. For me, mm -hmm. I could not be more proud to be a Canadian. That means standing up for our values, whether or not it's, it's uh, easy or not. Now, when you say this could have been a, an influence operation or a, a disruption operation, are you talking about the, the sexual assault allegation itself or the kind of digging it up and giving it to the media or, or both? So it depends who you talk to. Um, some people say, listen, this fits the MO of Chinese Communist Party in terms of the, the honey trap. Mm -hmm. um, I think the sad reality for me when I reflect on it all is uh, when... I kind of met the complainant, I was simply looking for someone to share my life with. Um, and I was looking for a partner. I was dating her for a few months. Um, and then it flamed out. And then 
by a random encounter, although some people, t I thought it was a random encounter. Some people said it wasn't, um, that I bumped into her again. And, um, the whole kind of incident happened when she invited me over, uh, only for her to ask, uh, essentially have a random person come in the middle of the night that told me to leave, um, which was weird, but I did. And then when I went home, I woke up in the morning to two voicemails from Toronto police that said um, someone had made an allegation of sexual assault against me. And that was my first ever... And what uh, year was this? This was in 20, 2019. And why would you have been on the radar then, in your view? So in 2018, I had run for city council. Mm -hmm. um, and the election was in October. Uh, I was ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, mm -hmm. I lost to the NDP incumbent. Um, and in 2019, uh, correction, a month later or a few weeks later after my municipal election is when I had met uh, the the woman who would eventually false, falsely mm -hmm. accuse me of sexual assault. And so, you know, we were dating for a few months and we started, we stopped dating in February. And then I, I thought I randomly bumped into her again mm -hmm. in March. And so when she invited me over, uh, this is now was early April. Um, you know, she, she invited me over, she offered to give me a ride. Heck, she even asked me what pizza I wanted. <laughs> and so, you know, when I got to, to her place, we were going to watch a movie and hang out. And so without going into all the details, we essentially were in bed. Uh, we fell asleep cuddling and in the middle of the night, she woke up and she was like, Oh, checks her phone. Uh, we're cuddling. So she wakes me up and she's like, Oh, my friend needs me. And I was like, okay, this is, this is still winter. Mm -hmm. It's the middle of the night. Uh, I was like, do you want me to go with you? She's like, no. I was like, okay, can I stay here, sleep and wake up in the morning and leave as I have previously before? She's like, sure. So she leaves, I guess to tell her to see her friend. Cause that's what she told mm -hmm. me. And I, the next thing I know, I wake up again. I'm woken up by a strange woman that I had never seen before. Who says I need to leave. And so she steps out of the condo so I can get dressed. And I just assume this is her friend. I don't know. And so I call an Uber, actually it's a Lyft, and, and I leave. And that is when I learn in our criminal justice system, despite what I think the majority of Canadians believe, where, you know, innocent to proven guilty, police talk to both sides. I learned that through the false allegation of one individual, the police can lay a charge <laughs> without having never spoken to me. And I was like, this is, it was, I mean, I, I didn't even know what to do. I, I had to call my best friend who told me, Kevin, you need to get a defense lawyer. And I was like, mm -hmm. I don't even know where I start. So I called another friend who recommended somebody and who arranged for me to surrender myself the next day to, I guess, to be booked by Toronto police. Right. And they let me out same day, like a few hours mm -hmm. after they booked me. And then seven months later. Um, I, I never actually, you know, the criminal defense lawyer is like, Kevin, this is nuts, but I'll take care of it. You try to move on with your life. And mm -hmm. so I tried to focus on, you know, stuff I was doing in the community, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, seven months later, which I'm told in the criminal justice system, apparently is very fast. Um, but it didn't feel like, <laughs> not like when it's it. hanging over you, like that's the, right. the sort of Damocles. Um, seven yeah. months later, the, the crown completely withdraw with, uh, withdrew the single mm. charge. Uh, there was no um, kind of special considerations or, or anything like that. They, they completely took it off. And because I didn't even get my day in court, right? I didn't even get a chance to fight it and be declared innocent. They were just like, nope, we're not even going to take this to court, which, you know, I kind of wish it did because then I'd have a definitive 
kind of uh, an, an acquittal is is more definitive than just we're not prosecuting. Yeah, it's this, completely yeah. withdrawn, right? But the issue is if if you want to weaponize a false allegation like this, mm -hmm. all you need to do is make make a false accusation, and the media runs with the story. Mm -hmm. um, and you know the Toronto Star. Uh, you know, I spoke to one of the three reporters in the bylines later within the context of foreign interference, uh, and they admitted to me they never even spoke to the complainant themselves. And I was mm. like, that's nuts. <laughs> so you, you put your name to an article without having ever spoken to the person, uh, and you just ran the story as it was told to you. Like, really? So do, you said earlier that some people think this was interference. Are you one of those people? Do you think this was a, an operation? Um. I, I think the more I have learned about foreign interference, the more that that is also my opinion, right? And and this isn't a secret, so I can, you know, I've I've sat down and spoken with CSIS mm -hmm. uh, as well to share what what my observations are, my experiences, and, and what other members of, of the Chinese diaspora and in my community have brought to me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember uh, when I requested to, to meet with them, um, you know, I thought I'd meet with them in Ottawa, and they're like, no, no, you're going to meet in Toronto with, with our people who are uh, specializing in this. Mm -hmm. And I thought it'd be a half an hour meeting, and it was two hours. Hmm. So to go back to how you've taken this experience in, I, I think the foreign interference issue was probably one of the first where you really started to, in, in my view, and I, the timeline's a little bit muddled now for the last couple of years, stand out as, as someone who, wow, this is a guy that, that's actually using his position even in a not ideal situation, being an independent and trying to advocate for, for real change on this. It also made you, I think, very popular, certainly online among a lot of conservatives, people that, you know, love the optics of, oh, you know, here's a guy that ran as a liberal sticking it to the liberals. And, and you're feeding into sort of a, a partisan framework, even, even with that. But you've also found a lot of support from people on the right for your stance on, on Israel and, and your criticism of anti-Semitism. Uh, when I kind of had the idea of doing this interview, you had uh, kind of given a very thoughtful thread on how your thinking has evolved on the use of the Emergencies Act. And, mm -hmm. and we can talk about that as well. But, but I'm curious if, how you felt about that, of finding this, this support in, in a way from you know, people that had you been elected in the Liberal Caucus and stayed in the Liberal Caucus probably wouldn't have had much time for you. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm as an independent, I'm grateful for, for any support that anyone offers. I, you know, I'm mm -hmm. willing to work with anyone if it means being able to kind of advance things that I believe are important to Canadians. Um, that for me, that's affordability, that's housing, fighting foreign interference, and setting up for our values. And I think that's where the, the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict has really um, made it, you know, for better or for worse, very easy for Canadians now to be able to see who truly shares their mm -hmm. values, um, whether it's standing up for, frankly, just for rule of law here in the streets of, of Canada, um, never mind what's happening in the Middle East, mm -hmm. right? And unfortunately, especially here in the city of Toronto, where we have 25 members of parliament, 25 MPPs and 25 city councillors, not including the mayor, I can probably count on one hand, Andrew, how many people of the 76 who have spoken out against anti-Semitism. And this is uh, very difficult for a lot of liberal MPs, and I, I don't know too, too many on a, on a personal level, but I, I just know that there have been a lot, even some Jewish MPs, that have been somewhat quiet and, and equivocal on this. Uh, people like Anthony Housefather, who's a liberal MP who's been quite outspoken on this, have been very much in the minority. And I'm, I'm wondering, 
Well, it's two parts to this question. Firstly, I'm just wondering what your relationships are like with with liberals and with MPs from other parties one on one in Ottawa. But also, you know, are, are these MPs that fundamentally believe something different from you? They fundamentally believe it. Or are they MPs that have been shamed and silenced into not saying what they think, which is what you're saying? So, so there are a few kind of uh, liberals who are kind of, quote unquote, the mavericks or, or people mm -hmm. that have been um, willing to speak up. Anthony Housefather, I've gotten to know in part because he kind of sat near me mm -hmm. um, and, and we've since seen one another at the rallies in support of Canada's Jewish community. Um, there, there are a few others like Joel Lightbound and others who had at times kind of voted um, despite what the party whip um, had said. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually have, have a lot of respect for, for Joel and um, he, he is, I think, a great public policy thinker. And um, I hope he has a, a great leadership role, whatever that might be in the Liberal mm -hmm. at some point. I've gotten to know, I think, a lot of uh, my conservative colleagues. And the reality is we are aligned on a lot of policy positions that I think, frankly, if liberals weren't whipped, would probably share too. Um, what do you mean, apart from the carbon tax? Well, so I... Well, I, it's funny. So the carbon tax is one example that that I do want to speak about because mm -hmm. there was, um, you know, a liberal MP and, and and I won't name him, but I remember ask, you know, I was trying to have like a constructive conversation. I was like, listen, help me to understand your position because the reality is um, the carbon tax drives up gas prices. And there are people, you know, this is an individual who represents um, the GTA riding and not everyone has public transit as an option. People have to drive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a reasonable position. And he said to me, he's like, well, Kevin, they should just drive less. And I was like, buddy, your riding is like majority drivers. How, how can you be so disconnected, right? And this individual is, is a parliamentary secretary. Um, and and it just, for me, it's so challenging. You know, I've, I've tried to talk to the Greens as well, mm -hmm. where I was like, hey, Help me to understand. You support Ukraine. We're aligned on that. Yes. Okay, great. Um, don't you think it would make sense for Canada to get our natural gas to Tidewater so that the world buys it from us instead of Russia? And also, by the way, gives us the revenue and the money to fund the advancements <laughs> in the industry that you want us to put more money in. And, you know, they'll I'll follow my fact pattern. And be like, yes, yes, up and until building more in Canada. And yeah. it just, they just like flip the table. And I'm just like, I don't understand <laughs> it. It breaks like, the brain do, when you know that part. How yeah. that, right? Yeah. And, and that, those are the people where I think, you know, I, at a personal level, I can get along with, I think, majority of people. But when it comes to these uh, positions, they're just so ideological. And I don't get it. Um, the other one, um, you know, and, and you brought her up, um, Yara Sachs. Yes. Um, you know, let's park the context of the Jewish community for a moment and just look at safe supply and the ideological fixation with giving out drugs that are proven to not only, uh, you know, within the euphemism of harm reduction, but really is harm facilitation, not only now for the users themselves, because harm reduction without treatment doesn't break mm -hmm. the cycle of addiction. Um, it's now wreaking havoc in local communities that host these sites, including uh, my, mm -hmm. my riding is home to or immediately adjacent to every single of these injection sites in the city of Toronto. And they are just, have become kind of these magnets of, of 
not just petty crime, but now drug dealers and its needles are being found everywhere. Uh, you know, people who sadly die from overdose being found at their bodies being found at children's playgrounds. Right. And, you know, I try to raise this, you know, um, there's a question I raised um, in the house specifically around safe supply where experts, clinicians speci specializing in addiction medicine, were trying to sound the alarm to the minister of mental health and addiction, Yara Sachs. And she turns around, she starts, you know, lambasting and yelling at me. How dare you? People are dying. And I was like, yeah, I know people are dying. It, yeah. You know, and your safe supply strategy has not reversed the trend. The amount of people dying keeps going up. And yet they have these ideological kind of blinders on and they refuse to admit that the strategy that they have put forward is not working. They won't adapt it, even though people are dying. And I remember you posted about it on social media a few days ago. There was that uh, very tense uh, council meeting in Richmond, British Columbia, where you had a, an Asian man who was speaking about exactly what you're speaking about, just the concerns he has from his community about these things. And he's yelled at yeah. for, you know, with, with all of the most you know horrific slurs you could use against an immigrant, go back where you came from, you're not Canadian. And that's what this debate has been distilled down to, that you're not allowed to say, you know what, I actually don't like drug users on the playground my kids are, are playing on. Yeah, it's, you know, it's sad because these are the same individuals often from the ideological spectrum of the left that mm -hmm. will talk about, oh, we need to be inclusive, we need to be diverse, up and until you dare to stand up and articulate a position that they don't agree with. Then all of a sudden they'll, they'll call you any number of mm -hmm. names. You mentioned having, you know, made some friends in the, the Conservative caucus, so I have to ask you the obvious question, would you join them? You know, that's a good question. I, I think if there was an opportunity to be able to uh, to serve in, in the government and all polls show that, yeah, I think to consider as a well form the next government, who wouldn't want the opportunity to be able to contribute and I think course correct and right the ship uh, of the direction that Canada has been going, which I don't think has been in, steered in the right direction. Yeah, have you had any conversations, even informal, with anyone in that party about either joining their caucus or, or running for them as a candidate? I, I think the door has has always been open uh, from from my side. I've chatted with people and they're like, yeah, Kevin, I, I think you'd fit right into caucus. But, you know, it's not just up to me. I think it's up to to party brass and the leadership as well, too, to, to find a fit and a path. So you've had no conversations with the, with the leadership or, or with people in the higher ranks? Listen, I, I've had a chance to be able to chat with, with the leader, Pierre, on mm -hmm. occasion on the margins. Um, I think, you know, if that's something that they want to pursue, listen, like I said, I'm I'm open to it. I'm curious in a way about why, because you've had a unique experience the last four years and that you've been unshackled by bipartisanship. And I'm wondering from the sensibilities you've shared here and at other interviews, whether you'd ever be comfortable going into that partisan framework again. You know, and, and that's that's a fair question. I think for me, I've always been um, a team player. That's especially in the military. You know, you operate as as a team uh, and you're always stronger together. I have not had that opportunity mm -hmm. uh, to be able to do that. And, you know, I, I hope that maybe there will be to be able to show how I can add value as part of a team. Because mm -hmm. the reality is, if you look at what we've been able to, um, I think, uh, to be able to deliver as an independent office, I think we've been pretty high impact, but there is only so much you can do mm -hmm. without the support of a party, of, of a caucus, with a whole network of resources. There is, I think, a ceiling 
Um, and there are a lot of challenges that Canadians are facing, and I want to be able to contribute to that. How effectively have you been able to help your constituents on, on files? And, and what I mean by that is that if you're an MP in government, you're kind of hanging out with the ministers. So you could just go up to them and be like, oh, you know, minister, someone in my riding, and they say, oh, we'll look into it. And and you don't necessarily have that. I mean, you could still try to pin a minister down in, in the House of Commons. But have you been able to still get progress on these constituency files that come to your come across your desk? A good example, I think, is during last summer, we had um, refugees that were on the street in Toronto. Mm -hmm. That was in my riding, just down the street from my office. And so that's something that I think I was able to raise in a way that no other Liberal MP would have been able to do so and, and raise awareness and highlight for media the issues and the gaps in terms of, hey, the federal government, despite my warnings, had decided to cut money uh, for refugees and shelters mm -hmm. at large um, completely. And I raised the alarm both in March, April, and May, and they ignored it. And what we're seeing now in the summer is a direct consequence of that, hmm. right? And ultimately, we were able to shame the government into doing the right thing and stepping up and giving the city the funding that they needed. You know, no one can really call out uh, the hypocrisy that we see, right? Where Justin Trudeau will, will love to claim the moral high ground of, yes, I'm helping refugees mm -hmm. and people in need, which I think most Canadians would support. But you can't do that and say that without actually providing the funding needed, Yeah. right? Um, and yet th they were trying to have their cake and eat it too. And so I was in a position to be able to call that out. And you know, I'm happy to say that we ultimately were able to shame them into doing the right thing and giving the city. And, and we've since seen kind of the funding from the federal government flow to other cities that are facing that onslaught of, of people. If the, the door is not, let's say, opened on the Conservative Party side of the equation, if you're not welcomed into that party, would you run again as an independent? Yes, um, I, I will run again. Um, you know what, hopefully it's, it's with the opportunity of being able to be a part of a team and, mm -hmm. and contribute to that. But if that's not the case, I will run again because I, I think we have a track record now and I think it's important that uh, we, we at least be another voice out there to call out particularly the hypocrisies mm -hmm. in different positions um, that Canadians need to know. As I mentioned at the outset, it, it's not entirely unheard of for independents to win. There was a, in Ontario last election, Bobby Ann Brady, that uh, won and hauled him in Norfolk as an independent. I think famously at the federal level, Jody Wilson-Raybould in, in Vancouver, Granville. Uh, you know, when you see the history of, of independents winning, is there any lesson that you take from that uh, on what would let you beat the odds if, if you do have to stand for, for re-election as an independent? Uh, I think, Andrew, the reality is the odds aren't in my favor. Um, it's not easy. There are a lot of systemic barriers. Like I can't, for example, um, raise money in between uh, elections mm -hmm. or, or writ periods as any other MP in a party would be able to do. Um, anyone who might want to donate uh, to a riding association that actually my team and I are in the midst of starting um, can donate, but they won't get a tax receipt. Right. And that's, so you, you can actually have an independent riding association. I wasn't yes. aware of that. Okay. Um, but but it, there isn't the weird thing is there aren't any rules that say I can't do it. Okay. Uh, it's just that, you know, I guess the Canadian bureaucrat uh, kind of instinct is if there are no rules saying that I can't explicitly do it, they just assume I can't do it. So you almost need to create like the Kevin Vong party and run as the, the candidate for Kevin Vong. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. you know, it's it's interesting kind of going through that experience mm -hmm. right now and. I, I think 
Canadian democracy more broadly would probably benefit from a little bit more independence mm -hmm. within the parties. I think that's a good thing. I think the UK is a prime example of that, where there is a lot more independence within parties for MPs to be able to speak up. And you can see that on my voting record. Sometimes I do vote with the government, uh, more increasingly I vote against, but that is largely really driven by what my constituents uh, positions are. They will call in, they will write in about different positions, and in the absence of them having mm -hmm. a particular yes or no or in support of or not, uh, my team and I will sit back and assess the merits of the policy or the bill and, and vote accordingly. Would that be your ideal scenario that, you know, we still keep political parties, but the parties themselves loosen the, the, the stranglehold that they have over their, their caucus members? So I think conceptually, yes. Um, and, and I only say conceptually because I haven't had the experience of being mm -hmm. part of a party to be able to say, like, I'm, I'm really going based off of what people tell me in terms of what their, their kind of party experience has been. And so you can kind of see it when everyone is standing up and voting in a certain way, when you know you've had conversations with so-and-so that they might not be too, too jazzed about that. Yeah, so it's interesting because I, I, you know, whenever there's a vote and I, mm -hmm. and I sit at my desk and, and my, my desk um, is, is beside the Greens and, and the Liberals. And I remember one Liberal member who would come in and so for, in advance of every vote, the pages would go around, they put a piece of paper Mm -hmm. on on every desk of the liberals essentially tell him how to vote and he would always come i always cracked up when he said it. he would kind of he was right beside me he'd go to his desk he would look down and be like oh it looks like i've made up my mind um <laughs> and i think a lot of canadians wow. don't realize that that's actually how currently a lot of the the votes happen right they are largely whipped i think every party does it um mm -hmm. you know to the conservatives credit because i've seen their paper too it at least articulates their rationale for why they vote the way they do, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a step up from what the liberals are, which is like, you're either in favor or you're not. No thinking required. Yeah. So maybe maybe one little minor uh, thing that we could do is just ban pieces of paper. Get Take the printers out of the House of Commons and then every MP has to make up their mind. But that's the pipe dream, I guess. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because, you know, sometimes like there are different uh, opposition motions. And I remember there's a conservative motion saying that Canada should... Um, uh, fulfill our international commitment to NATO and, and hit 2%. Mm -hmm. And the liberal instinct always is, you know, if it's a conservative, it's bad. So vote yeah. against Don't it. even listen to the policy. It's opposition yes. motion. No. However, this time they actually decided to vote with it. Hmm. Um, and there was a, a liberal who was remote. And so I guess didn't get the piece of paper. And so by instinct voted against it hmm. uh, and then had to change it afterwards. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, shouldn't you be thinking, shouldn't you be at least evaluating the every policy, every vote on its merits? But it's not always the case. If the supply and, and confidence agreement between the, the NDP and the Liberals hold, you've got a, about a year and a half left in, in your current term. What is it you'd like to achieve in that time? What's the, the goal for you? So for me, I think it's always been trying to stand up for, for the city. Um, I'm a Toronto MP. Uh, it's setting up for, for the people who not only elected me, but what's good for the city writ large. You know, when 2021, um, in that election campaign, the Liberals had promised to give Toronto um, its due. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the 24 other Liberal MPs seem to have forgotten. Um, it's also standing up for people who are struggling to make ends meet. And so, listen, I think every MP probably wants to support the environment. 
um, and recognizes that there have been challenges in the climate. Mm -hmm. In Toronto, we've had flooding um, and and extreme rains in a way that we never had before. We need to do that to that, right? But what the current policy is around the carbon tax isn't working. And so for me, that is hopefully being able to help to support that movement. And it, it is true that the Conservatives and I think Pierre Polyev are, are kind of leading the charge on that. But I think it helps if there's an urban MP from Toronto that is also a part of that message, which is this is not working. Uh, the carbon tax is making it harder for more Canadians than it's helping. We need to find another way to be able to address that um, as well as in a way that helps to lift up all Canadians and our prosperity. Independent Member of Parliament, Kevin Bong. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.